0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You know, a lot of the books of the New Testament that are actually letters when they were originally written, they draw to a close with uh, lines very similar to that. There's this sort of generic end greeting as... The writer of that letter says hello to a number of people in the city that's receiving the letter. And and so there's a temptation to kind of gloss over those closing remarks. I know how it is that towards the end of a lecture or towards the end of a sermon or towards the end of any talk or letter, you kind of tune out because you already know what's coming and you just gloss over it. But I think it would be really a big mistake to skim or even skip over these closing remarks because I think they're very precious to us. And if you pause for a moment and think about the fact that the Holy Spirit superintended the assembly of God's Word, there's a reason why God allows these closing greetings to be included and preserved to this day for us to read as part of Holy Scripture. And here's why I think it's so important that we pay attention to these final greetings. I think they paint for us a picture of warmth and humanness that described the early church. Especially when you read the letters of guys like Paul, there is such a strong and, and rigid theology that comes across that you start getting this idea that the early church was an institution on the move, an organization or a movement, and it was faceless and nameless and impersonal. And that's easy to think that until you begin reading these things and you realize once again that the glue that held the early church together is really the same glue that holds us together. It is that people are coming together with a shared experience of salvation in Christ, but also once they come together, they find genuine friendship. And what I find amazing is that at our church, as well as in many other churches I've I've been a part of, there are people who come to the church who still don't have that relationship with Jesus But they're held there socially by the relationships they found with new friends in that church. That speaks to the power of friendship. It also speaks to the power of the desire God's deposited in each of us for a really meaningful and intimate kind of relationship. And most of us just finished celebrating Thanksgiving. Some of us are still sleepy from all the food we ate. How many of you guys gained at least 10 pounds over the last few days? I mean, I am so full from all the food I ate. And I don't know what Thanksgiving is like for you, but I know in America, Thanksgiving is a real mixed bag. For some families, it's a time full of tradition and and being grateful for all that you've gotten. For others, it's a very painful and awkward time. Really uncomfortable, it can only be endured with lots of alcohol. I I know how that goes for a lot of families. So when I talk about Thanksgiving... Not everybody has the warm fuzzies. It's more like, oh, i got to sit in a room with these people that I can't help being related to for an entire evening, squirming under my skin, and then come home. Now, I'm sorry if that hits too close to home. If that describes your family, I I want to say this. Even if you have a family that is relatively dysfunctional, the fact that you can recognize that reveals something. That somewhere deep in our hearts, God has already deposited an idea of what intimacy should feel like, so that we're very aware when it's missing. And for a lot of us, we've been yearning for, and if you grew up in a family that's somewhat broken and and difficult, then you know that your lifelong quest has been to find a place called home. To find a place where your heart is at peace in all circumstances and you're comfortable with the people around you, because even in your sleep you know, without question, these people love you as you are, and will not judge you in their hearts. I think that's one of the big glues that God has always used to hold the healthiest churches together. And I'm always surprised to read these online essays or these uh, surveys of why people leave the church. I just finished this week reading at least 12 different surveys of reasons why people are leaving the American church. And so many of them have to do with frustration and disappointment regarding relationships they wanted in the church and could not find. And I find that really revealing about what it is that holds the church together. Make no mistake, the main glue that holds us together is our bond in being saved by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. But a lot of times what keeps us in that particular congregation is the people that we share our lives with. You know, the passage that Ed read traces out a few relationships that Peter makes special mention of as he's kind of going through these closing remarks. And I want to walk through those relationships with you to point out something that I think is really important about the healthy church. I believe in the healthiest churches, there is a visible and strong commitment to stand together. And I want to show you out of this passage a couple of relationships that are really key for this. And the first is partner to partner. I, I really love the idea of a tandem bike. Raise your hand if you've ever ridden a tandem bike before. All right, so usually um, you ride a tandem bike only if your good friend has one or if you're trying to get that, win the heart of somebody of the opposite sex. It's the kind of thing, cutesy kind of thing that dating couples would do, trying to show the girl your soft side and all that. But the cool thing about a tandem bike is that you don't get very far if both people aren't working together. So partnership is really important but also you probably won't find yourself on a tandem bike with someone else unless you have a pre-existing relationship, right? I mean, tandem bike is not just for locomotion. There's another reason you ride a bike in tandem, isn't it? The first person that Peter mentions in the closing of his letter is this guy named Silvanus. And that's a a name that's probably not familiar to you, but that's the same man, it's his second name, for a man that we often hear of as Silas in in the New Testament. He's a guy that was a prophet, a leader of the early church, a Roman citizen, a very close associate of the Apostle Paul. He was one of the most prominent figures in the first church. And this is the guy that Peter is thanking. And what's interesting is that in this this, uh, closing remark, he says, By Silvanus, or by Silas, I have written briefly to you. And scholars are somewhat divided on what that means. Why is Peter saying, I have written this letter by Silvanus? Because there are two ways people would say that in the ancient days. The first interpretation is that Silas served as an amanuensis. That's a a fancy way of saying he was the secretary or the guy who was kind of ghostwriting with Paul. Because for some reason, certain guys could not write or were not very good at writing, but they had something to say. And so they would often have somebody who assisted them in the actual penning of the letter. If that's the case, then it's a beautiful picture of partnership Because as we know when we read the Gospels, Peter wasn't exactly the most eloquent communicator. Peter was one of these crass, coarse kind of guys who, he's like an id with a vocal box. I mean, he just—he says the first thing that comes to his mind. He he operated on the principle of open mouth and insert foot. And he did this all the time. Some of us are like that. How many of you are like, you say something and as soon as the words leave your mouth, you're like, I really wish I hadn't said that. Sometimes I do that from up here, and I know for a fact that that week I'm going to get at least three or four emails pointing out that I said a certain thing that I probably shouldn't have said. Some of us are like that, and so you see this beautiful picture where Silas, who was probably much more educated, much more eloquent, lent a helping hand to Peter, who had something to say but just didn't know the best way to say it. But a second interpretation is that Silas was the messenger, the one who carried the letter physically to the intended recipients. Now, you might think that's just the Pony Express; Anyone could have carried the letter, but that's also a very beautiful picture of partnership because it was really important who it was that brought the letter. You have to understand that at this point in the early church's history, Peter was an established leader of the church. He was an a clearly recognized figure, but he was writing this letter from Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire, and he was not free by by the Holy Spirit to return to Asia Minor and deliver this letter. So he had to send it with somebody who would be recognized. You know, Peter was such a prominent figure, anybody could have stood up and said, hey, I got a letter from Peter, and it could have just been something he wanted to say. You can imagine how this works, because there was no email addresses with verifiable you know, uh, IP addresses and things like that. It was just somebody would stand up and go, I have a letter from Peter. And the first question is, who are you, and how do we know that's really from him? When Silas carries the letter, he's lending to Peter's intention his own reputation as a gift. He's saying, look, a lot of people won't buy this letter from anyone, but if I deliver it, they'll listen to what you have to say. And it was no small task either because he was going from Rome without the, the benefit of airplanes or, uh, or cars or, or trains. He was going probably largely on foot or by some kind of donkey all the way from Rome and Italy to Turkey, what is now Turkey. And it was a letter addressed, as you see in First 1 Peter 1, one, It's not a letter just addressed to one place, but it was meant to be circulated all throughout Asia Minor, which is a pretty large area. And so Silas really sacrificed himself to deliver this letter on behalf of Peter. Either way, whichever way you interpret it, whether it was through the lending of his his penmanship or the lending of his sacrificial service, this is a picture of how the church has always been held together. People sacrificially and out of a spirit of friendship, serving one another in real partnership for a shared cause. But what's interesting is it's not just partnership. It's not just work that Peter and Silas did together. But what he says, he's very careful to mention this, is that he is a faithful brother as I regard him. Now, that's the ESV trying to render the Greek as true to form as possible. And it's even in the Greek, it's a bit of an awkward phrasing. It's Peter's way of trying to say this. This is not just a guy carrying a letter as a partner in ministry, a co-worker. But this is someone I really think of warmly as a brother. It's interesting how often in the New Testament, when the people who are writing it were trying to come up with a way to express affection, they use the language of family to refer to people who are unrelated to them by blood. You know, we we say to each other today, hey, brother, probably with about as much meaning or depth as the Soviet communists refer to one another as comrade, you know. It's like, hey, brother, hey, comrade, hey, bro. Hey, buddy, we have all these terms of endearment that used to mean something, but today it's just like, dude, right? Dude. When we hear the word brother, we don't think much about it in the church, but it was one of the ways that in the early church, they were trying to say, how do I express to another person how much you really mean to me because we don't have any shared DNA, any blood, and yet I feel like you are my family. Some of us have been fortunate enough over the course of our lives to meet a person Just like that, with whom we're not related by blood, but they have poured so much into our lives that when we think of them, we think of them just, we can't think of them as anything other than family. I was watching an episode of Deal or No Deal not too long ago, and it was a Thanksgiving special, and this guy said, you know, I hadn't sat down to Thanksgiving dinner with my family since I was in high school, and he's got like seven siblings. And so, of course, as they always do and Deal or No Deal, they surprise the contestant by flying his whole family Out there, And they revealed and they walked out of a a side door and he was blown away, all his relatives together on the stage. What was interesting, though, was included among those relatives were two guys who were just friends. But they weren't just friends. They were such dear friends that upon interviewing the contestant, they realized these guys are like family. So that this network paid for these two guys to be flown out along with the rest of the family. I know that many of you have a friend like that. Somebody who might as well be family because their role, their value in your life is immeasurable. This is what Peter is trying to say about Silas, is that this guy is not just my co-worker. He is like family to me. I love him with a personal kind of love that's hard to describe in words. You know, not a whole lot has changed since those early days, has it? I think that's really what makes the healthiest churches such a great place to be. That they're not just places where people are working together for a cause. Because if you just have that, it's a really dry place. Listen, here's a way of looking at it. If you have just mission minus friendship, what do you have? You've got a company. You've probably got the place that you're going to go to work tomorrow, a lot of you. Is that you don't really think of your coworkers as personal friends. They're just work friends. You know what I'm talking about? But what if you have just friendship minus a sense of mission or purpose? Then all you've got is a club. But It is when you have mission plus friendship that you have the church. I'm a really firm believer in this principle, that what I always dreamt of for Harvest to be is not a place driven by ambition or some kind of purpose. I, I really, I really get turned off by churches that are so driven by a mission that they've discarded relationship along the way where people are just a cog in the, in the machine, where they say, look, your only role is to be a worker, a worker, a worker. Who you are is not that important. Die to yourself every day. Live for the mission. The mission is exceedingly important. Don't get me wrong. I think that people who don't have a shared mission really start to lose that relationship after a while. But I absolutely am convinced that the healthiest churches also couple that with a sincere and warm and genuine friendship. And a lot of that friendship gets built in cafes or on softball fields, on basketball courts, in your dining room as you invite some people over for dinner. This is the place where life gets done together, where you realize, I'm not just going on a short-term mission trip with you. You are like my brother or my sister. Some of the best mission trips I've ever been on, I felt guilty because it's like going on vacation with your family members on God's expense, and getting to do wonderful, life-changing work for him. I think that's not an issue of guilt. That's the way it should feel when the church is functioning well together. You know, we're doing a lot of work at our church on the mission front because we've had some weaknesses in that area. We haven't always had a clear sense of vision or mission in our church. And there are a lot of missed opportunities we've had to watch over the years slip by. And so we're trying very hard to figure out what has God called us to and what is that shared sense of calling that will bind us together and focus our efforts. But we're always going to have to do a lot of hard work to nurture that other side of the house. The fact that we're not here just to work. If you're teaching a class, for example, and all you're geared toward is, I'm going to get this material across because these people need to know, and you don't love the people sitting in those chairs, you're not a teacher in this church. You are maybe for a term, but you won't be for long. Because in this church, one thing we're going to always try to reinforce is that if we don't love one another, nothing else we do really matters that much to God. Think about the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us. The active verb in both of those commandments was not do or teach or build. It was love. Love God with everything and love each other the way you love yourself. This is on God's heart. And for all the things we accomplish in his name, if we haven't learned to love one another in genuine friendship, it really doesn't matter what other critique we have of this institution. The church was never meant to be an organization. It was always meant to be an organism. I know that plays a little bit like a John Maxwell one-liner, but it's so true. It's supposed to be a living thing, not just another place where you go to work just for a different boss. There's a second relationship which Peter mentions, and that is church to church. Where do I get that? Look at what it says in verse 12, verse 13 here. She who is at Babylon also sends you greetings. I first read that and thought, what does that mean, she who is at Babylon? It must be a woman of such prominence that he doesn't even have to say her name. When I say she who is in Babylon, you all know who I'm talking about, right? Right? If I said, for example, she who is married to Brad, everybody knows who I'm talking about, right? She who is adopting children from every third world country she can find, you know who I'm talking about. And so maybe I thought that's what it is. It's a woman of such prominence in the church. And then I did a little more careful study and realized it's not a person at all. And it's not even Babylon. By the time Peter is writing, Babylon, which was once the greatest, most feared city and nation in the world, was in ruins and just a small podunk village, a memory in in the global landscape. In fact, there's no indication that Peter ever visited Babylon or knew anyone personally from Babylon. But from the Old Testament times forward, Babylon in scripture was always a symbol of the great power centers of the secular world. And so every scholar that I read agrees that what Babylon refers to is Rome, the very city from which Paul or Peter is writing this letter. And what he's really saying, she is the church in in Greek, just like in Spanish, all nouns have a gender associated with them. And the the gender of the word church in Greek is a feminine gender. And so who he's referring to is the church here in Rome sends her greetings to you. There are some theories as to why he wrote it so cryptically. One of them is that Roman persecution of the church was at an all-time high, and he did not want any messenger or any recipient of this letter to know that it it had come from Rome and thus endanger the Christians who are now worshiping in that city. And so it was a bit of a coded message, which every Christian in that time would have understood. And, And basically the bottom line is this. Peter here gives us a whole new lens on the way that Christians are called to love one another. When we hear the word love, we usually think at an individual level. But here he shows us that it is possible for one group of Christians to genuinely love another group of Christians. In other words, what he's saying is it's possible for one church to genuinely love and extend greetings to another church. In fact, he's saying one person can speak for the whole church and really mean it that collectively we would back him up on this. We send you our greetings. What do you think is the significance of all of that? Well, notice that he also is careful to say they're likewise chosen. What is the bond between the church in Rome and the church all throughout what is now Turkey? What is the linkage between them? Because chances are that the vast majority of the people in both churches had never met each other face to face. So he says it's very important for you to know that the Christians in Rome are likewise chosen. In other words, the the basis of our bond together... It's not that we've met each other or that we're the same ethnicity or the same doctrinal system. It's not that we've done work together. It is that together we share the experience that by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of us who were unworthy were chosen just like you. That amazing experience brings us together. I I saw once on a TV show that there was a support group for people who had won the lottery. People who were dirt poor and suddenly they were worth $100 million bucks, and they didn't know what to do with the psychological and emotional baggage that comes with it. So they formed a sense of community among themselves and all because they all shared one life-altering experience that changed everything for them. That is the basis by which one church loves another. You know, it's a lot easier to partner with another church if we believe the same stuff, if we maybe all have eyes that look like this together. It's easier to feel comfortable if we're all the same. But what Jesus says is the most important sameness that any group of Christians will ever share is our shared experience of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the bond universally that ties every church together. And when we let other stuff get in the way and we start breaking fellowship with one another over dicing and slicing words, some of those words need to be sliced and diced. Don't get me wrong. They're important distinctions. But there's such a spirit of divisiveness that so often marks the relationship between churches. You know, that picture is in the same town on the same block on the same street, two churches sitting right next door to each other. And if that were in America, chances are those two churches would probably have no relationship that's real with one another. I wouldn't need to go to this European city to photograph those churches. I could walk right outside onto Grand Canyon Street. Couldn't I? I could take a stone and hit another church right now from those stairs. And yet in 13 years of being here, we don't really have much of a relationship with St. Hubert's next door, do we? And I, I'm really convicted by that. I, as I was looking at this picture, that thought occurred to me. And I was immediately think I should get rid of that picture because people will realize that's us. I think it's important that churches, especially in America, learn to love one another. You know, there are so many examples in the Bible of one group of followers of God loving another group very sacrificially, even though they'd never met face to face. But I don't have to look in the Bible only to see those examples. There are examples all around us today. There are stories like that in our own church's history. And there's this wonderful story I recently heard from a friend of mine. His name is Brian, and he pastors the New Song Church plant in North Orange County, California. We've got to know each other, and he's really an interesting guy and uh, a very courageous leader. They do stuff over there that's kind of gutsy. Actually kind of crazy. And recently he was praying with his leadership, and they felt like after their leadership conference, uh, the challenging of the speaker prompted them, we need to do something costly because as a church, we're so comfortable, we've never been intentionally inconvenienced for the sake of another church. We've never really known what it is to sacrificially love another group of Christians somewhere else. After they prayed that in response to their leadership conference, a situation arose where one of their partners in China had this amazing vision for a ministry, and they wanted to launch it just before the start of the Summer Olympics in Beijing. They had worked very hard to get this thing underway, but they fell short by $15,000, which for that group of Christians in China was a, a big fortune. And so there was, the work had so much of importance it, it was going to stall, and this church in North Orange County said, we heard this, it's not a coincidence or an accident that we became aware of this just now. We feel like we're supposed to do something. Now, they've got a couple really rich people in their church, just like we have a couple really rich people in our church. And his first thought was, I should go and challenge them personally and try to just knock this whole thing out in one swing. But then they were convicted that that wouldn't teach the church anything. They felt like they were supposed to be inconvenienced sacrificially as a whole church. So what did they do? Well, they were a portable church. What that means is they were renting a facility, and they were using trailers to store all their stuff, and they were in this little in this place. It was a nice place, though, a 500-seat auditorium, classrooms, offices, all made available to them at a very low rate of $1,500 a week. It was pretty good rent for all they were getting. They decided that they were going to give up that $1,500 a week they were paying for rent, and as a congregation for two months... They were going to relocate and worship somewhere else so that that rent money could go to their partners in China so that those Christians could serve the Lord's calling in Beijing just in time for the Olympics. That was huge because the Olympics was ticking down, it was coming fast, and they didn't have a lot of lead time. So they scrambled to do this. And the church was kind of reeling from all this. The leaders were united in it. We really feel the Lord's calling on us to do this, but it's going to be costly. Well, They took it on faith that God would provide them another place. And here's how crazy they got. It's God's blessing that they were in Northern California, Southern California, where the weather is always nice. Do you realize there's a church I know that has had fellowship outside every single Sunday for 10 years? Never a bad enough weather that they had to bring it inside. So they said, why can't we just worship outside in a parking lot? We're in California. What do we need a roof for? So they decided they're going to start looking for parking lots. The week before, you know, the zero hour, Another church said, we'll lend you our space if you'll change your, evening, your worship to the evening. and We'll lend you our space for free. Just help us take some of the credit for giving that gift to China. So it was all great. It was going to work out. And then in the middle of that last week, that church pulled out. So here they were. What do we do? They all fell on their knees. They prayed, God, we're trying to love another church, but it's costing us so much. At The 11th hour, literally the day before. A businessman locally let them use their warehouse for three months rent-free. Catch was that it was dark, it was dirty, and it had no air conditioning, and it was in the heat of summer. Not to mention the physical facility Was such a huge demotion from what they were used to. I mean, this is North Orange County. It's a very posh area, and they were used to something a little more comfortable. And this congregation of 350, many young kids, families that are very well to do professionals, suddenly started meeting in a place that was like you're knocking out cobwebs just to find a seat. It was a very costly decision for them as a church. It was a very unpopular move, especially for people with little kids. I don't know what it is about having little kids that makes people kind of whiny, but they just needed everything just so for their kids. And it wasn't just so, and so they voted with their feet, and they lost 100 people. It was a congregation of 350, and they lost 100 people so that they could sacrificially love another church. Some people look at that and say, that was irresponsible. You honored a bunch of people in China, but forgot the people at home. You know what he said? He thinks that God pruned their church, cut away the dead branches who were there only to complain, and left them 250 people who knew how to love others in the kingdom of God the way God had intended. Now, you can take that for however you want it to. That story inspired me because it reminded me that this is a really big thing on the heart of God that he's got families all over the globe and it matters to him that one family here loves another family over there. Now, one of the things I've always treasured about our church, in a way, the second point is preaching to the choir because one of the things I've always treasured about Harvest is that you all are one of the most selfless and non-territorial congregations I've ever been been in or or even met. And I'm not saying that to butter you up. I've been associated with a lot of churches and I've seen this kind of territorialism that I think is very ugly to God. Our church is the greatest church ever. We're always the best at everything. And, and, we're the, and I've seen that spirit reign in a lot of churches. I've never really felt that at our church. I argue maybe because we're not the best at anything. I don't know. But there is this openness. Like when when we have softball games or football fellowships, I feel like I'd have to say to anybody, make sure you talk to people from the other church. Make sure that you watch your attitude. Make sure you're friendly. Because there is this genuine openness to do stuff with other churches. When I see the attitude our church has toward our partners in Tuba City, in Kenya, in, in China, in Indonesia, there is a selflessness in our church that I think has to be guarded with zealousness. Because it's one of the great strengths of this church. It's one of the things I hope we will never lose is our openness to love other churches in the kingdom of God. You have very, very often lent me and your other pastors to other congregations as a gift. Or maybe you just needed a break from us. But, you know, I've been free to travel and to meet other churches and other pastors to preach at their retreats. And they have always been so blessed by it. And say, tell your church, thank you for letting you go. Because it's not a small thing when a church does that. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to really call you as a congregation to be aware that that is one of the greatest things about us as a church. And we need to fiercely guard it and make sure that spirit of territorial pride, tribalism, never shows its face. Harvest Community Church. Let me give you a third relationship, which Peter is pointing up. And that is generation to generation. I really like this picture. I I wonder if this happens enough anymore in America where grandpas touch the lives of their grandsons and teach them stuff that their dads might not even be able to teach them. You know, I realize there are things you'll learn from your grandpa that your dad doesn't even know because your grandpa grew up in a time when he didn't have all the conveniences of the modern era. Your grandpa might teach you how to fix a car, not just how to dial the the auto shop, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing grandpa can teach you. I I think that picture is beautiful to me because it shows that always through the world, the healthiest families, the healthiest churches, even the healthiest companies have always been marked by a generation-to-generation impartation. That each wave of people doesn't jealously and selfishly guard their knowledge and guard their expertise, but unselfishly passes it along to those who are called to steward and keep the fires lit for the next wave. And when you don't see that happening in a family or a church or a company, that's pretty much it. It will last one more generation if they're lucky, and all the form of glory will fade, and it will die. Because one generation hoarded what it was meant to give away freely. I really believe that in the healthiest human organisms and organizations, this generation-to-generation blessing is very vibrant and alive. Peter mentions someone he calls his son. We're very familiar with that terminology because in the New Testament, Paul often called Timothy his spiritual son. Well, Peter was not to be outdone by Paul, so he found himself his own spiritual son named Mark. Mark's story is an interesting one. This Mark referred to is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's also the same guy referred to in the New Testament as John Mark. He was that young kid, a a nephew or distant cousin of Barnabas who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey ever. And by the time they got to about the third city, John Mark started getting homesick. He wanted to see his mommy. And so he decided, I gotta go home. I can't do this anymore. This life on the road is difficult. Now, I'm making a little fun, but I think it pretty much played out like that because Paul, who was such a mission minded guy, was disgusted by John Mark's attitude of quitting. He was so disgusted by it that later on, when they were gonna go on a second missionary journey, Barnabas said, Hey, let's take my cousin John Mark again. Let's give the kid a second chance. And Paul said, you must be smoking something. There is no way I'm going to take that crybaby quitter with us on our second journey. Don't you know how important the work is? Let's take someone proven, not this ninny. Barnabas, however, stood up for his relative, John Mark. And what's amazing about Mark's story is that while as a young man, he had this fantastic failure. And really, that's not uncommon, is it, for young men to overestimate themselves and lay a foundation of huge, spectacular failure when they're young. Some of you guys laid such a foundation in your own lives when you were young. That's not so uncommon. What is uncommon is that Mark rose out of the ashes of failure and discovered the beauty of a restored life. That's something amazing. That's a story I hope will play over and over again in our church. Later on in the story... It says through the lips of Paul himself that Mark became a young man who was a very valuable partner to him in the ministry. What made the difference between young Mark, who was a loser in Paul's eyes, to the older Mark, who was a valued partner in Paul's eyes? Well, probably a lot of things happened, but I think two of the things God used most were two older men who stepped in at a critical moment in Mark's life and believed in him. His relative Barnabas actually stood up for him, defended him. said, everybody fails, but everybody in Christ deserves a second go. Redemption is the agenda of God. Paul, you of all people should know that. You were once the killer of Christians. Now you're our leader. Should you not have more grace for this young man? And yet Paul couldn't see it, which is a really heartwarming thing for me because even someone as perfect as Paul made mistakes. Barnabas so believed in the idea of grace for this young man who had failed so miserably that he was willing to risk his friendship with a man as powerful as Paul so that he could stand by this young man. What do you think that did in the heart of this guy whose main story was, I'm the one who quit on Paul and Barnabas? Everywhere he went, that's how he was introduced. You must know Mark. He's the one who, you know, we don't like to talk about it, but he left them. He left them at Perga. That's the guy. What do you think it does for him to watch his older relative push everyone else aside and say, get behind me, Mark. I'm going to give you a second chance. What's interesting is Silas, who appears in the beginning of Peter's final remarks, is the same guy who goes with Paul on that second missionary journey. In fact, Paul and Silas are mentioned as a unit 17 times in the New Testament. They become lifelong partners. But Peter steps in also later in this young Mark's life. And Peter decides to take this kid under his wings and really pour himself into him. And, and what, what we learn from the early church historian Eusebius is that what Peter did was he grabbed Mark and everywhere they journeyed together, he would regale Mark with stories about eyewitness accounts of what it was like to walk with Jesus, to eat with Jesus, to listen to his teachings, to be there when the miracles were happening. He probably told them all about what it was like shoveling out fish and loaves mystically out of these baskets, and he couldn't understand how Jesus was doing it. He told them all these stories. Basically what he was doing was testifying his whole life with Jesus and pouring it into this young man. And this early church historian, Eusebius, says that the bulk of the material from Mark's gospel came from the stories that Peter told him as Peter was rebuilding this young man's heart and this young man's place in the kingdom of God i got to tell you, a lot of young people fail. A lot of young people get broken somewhere fundamentally inside when they're young. And so many of them never recover. I know because I've counseled a great many broken adults who first got broken when they were very impressionable teenagers. There are people walking around today with a permanent scowl on their face. They haven't cracked a smile unless something cracked them up. You know, you know those people who the only two modes they have is cracking up laughing or like this. That's their two gears. And you know where that scowl came from for so many of them? It came in their teenage years. From this frustrating desire to receive praise from their dad and never getting it. From a desire to receive one touch of intimacy from their mother and never getting it. For competing with another sibling for affection and approval and never getting it. For having one spectacular failure. You crashed your dad's car while you were drinking on prom night and you never outlived that failure. Your dad never let you outgrow that stupid thing you did. Those kinds of childhood failures that break us stay with us for life. Unless someone intervenes in God's name. Speaks grace into our lives. Pour something redemptive like healing oil or medicine all over our hearts. If that doesn't happen, broken people stay broken. And on the outside, they may learn how to function and hold a job, even get married. But somewhere deep down, something is seriously wrong in them. I want to tell you right now, this generation-to-generation blessing is such an important part of how we take young, broken, failed people and rebuild them in the name of Jesus Christ. It's so critical we do that because, you know, let me just be honest with you, just because you can make babies doesn't mean you can be a mom or dad. Just because you're reproductively viable doesn't mean you know how to raise children. And in America today, we are seeing an entire generation grow up foundationally broken, totally disconnected from wholeness, healthiness. And someone's going to have to step in and help rebuild some of these people. Who's going to do that? Some of us who had children when we didn't know what we are doing. I mean, my oldest son, Jeannie, and I made all our rookie parenting mistakes on that kid. I want to buy him a car when he turns 16 as my way of apologizing to him for trying to experiment on him and learn parenting 101. And probably, and I'm the oldest kid. I know, I, I think I'm the product of some of that. You guys know what I'm talking about. And you feel like maybe you're already past that point of no return with your kids. But you're not. You're not. And I want to give a few strong invitations to you as a church today. The first is this. If you're a parent, if you ever intend to be a parent, would you please take up the responsibility to disciple your children? I don't mean bring them to church. I don't mean make sure they have the routine Bible time before bedtime every day. I mean, speak life into them. Pay attention to what their hearts are going through. The uniqueness. See them. So many kids just want to be seen. They want a parent who will take the time to teach them how to become older, how to know God. If you're too busy, if you're too absent, you will miss out on one of the most incredible opportunities of your life. And I'm not going to guilt you into doing it, it's not about guilt. It is one of your greatest responsibilities as a parent to raise your children spiritually, but it is also one of the greatest privileges, and it will be if you do it right, one of the greatest accomplishments of your earthly life is to have put children onto the earth who are healthy and whole inside and love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their hearts. who don't grow up trying to finish business that never got finished in their childhoods, but can actually do something for the Lord, from a place of health. You know, even the best youth pastor in the world cannot undo a decade and a half of parental neglect. I know, I was a youth pastor once, and I had a church of 600 dump their teenagers on me and say, fix them. <laughs> if you have any idea how many hours I spent on my knees, how many days I spent fasting, saying, Lord, please help me fix a few of them. My track record was not very good. On a couple hours a week, even the best youth pastor cannot undo a decade and a half of parental neglect. Whether you're trying to or not, you're shaping your children's souls. Even if you're doing it out of total neglect, I've watched this over and over. Kids imprinting their parents, you know mimicking them, saying the things they say, thinking the way they think. Even unintentionally, you are shaping your children. Why not rise up and accept the invitation to shape them intentionally? Let me give you a second invitation. Would you seriously consider, at some point in your life at harvest, doing your share to serve in our seeds and our roots ministries? Seeds is fairly well staffed, but they still have needs. And Roots is a group that I really want to make a special plug for. These children are in the most difficult years of their lives. They're in their preteen and teenage years. And things are changing for them, and they need guidance, especially women. Right now, we have two male youth pastors and some male teachers, but we really need more and more females, uh, volunteers, who can help guide some of these young girls through the turbulent years of puberty and, and, and the teenage years. It is really difficult for them. And here's something I learned when I attended the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. In the United States, at least 75% of people who convert to Christianity make that decision for Jesus Christ before the age of 14. That's huge. If you ever wanted to be a part of a story of of changing somebody's eternity, there is an immense likelihood that you will be a part of such a story if you work with teenagers. There are so many kids in our youth group right now who grew up in the church but don't have a life-giving personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And they're not going to get that just listening passively to one sermon a week. Someone needs to pour into their lives. You know what's so cool about Peter and Mark? Mark was a failure, but Peter also knew a thing or two about failure, didn't he? He also knew a thing or two about restoration. Peter was the most spectacular failure in the New Testament. But he had one of the most amazing recoveries because of Jesus Christ restoring him directly. And out of that pain and rebirth, he poured into Mark because he saw so much of himself in Mark. Some of you have the exact same pain that some of our teenagers are going through. And if they just could hear that and see how you turned out, and you could give them a little hope, they might not feel so alone in their journey. Can I seriously impress upon you that maybe just for six months, maybe for one year, in all the years that you spend at Harvest, you might consider giving some of that time and some of your life to help guide the teenagers in our church. I think you would do an immeasurable service for the kingdom of God if you do that. And one last invitation I'll give you briefly is that it's not just adults to children, but one adult to another. This impartation of one life well-lived Pouring into another life. If you've seen something of God's goodness in your life, make yourself available to people who are younger in the faith. It's a little, uh, you know, presumptuous to come up to you and go, somebody else and go, "Hey, um, I've got a lot of good influence I could wield, and I want to pour it into your life. You want some?" You know, that, not everybody's comfortable saying stuff like that. You know, some of you are totally okay with it, but others are a little more, you know, like humble. <laughs> So instead of imposing yourself on someone, make sure that you're very available. Make sure you let people know that you're willing to pour into the life of other people. Because there are some people in their 20s who desperately need to get into a relationship with somebody in their 30s and 40s. I'm surprised at a church how often I hear, I only want to be around people in my own life stage. The other people don't understand me. They're not at my life stage. Well, guess what? When you're with people at your own life stage, you're always going to be in customer mode. I need you because we're in the same boat. But when you're with people who are in a different life stage, suddenly the rules change. And you remember that you have, you have something to give to pour out into someone else. And they're thirsting for it. And you may not think you're perfect or have much to offer, but if you're still standing and walking with Jesus where you are right now in life and there's somebody who's behind you in years, you've got something to offer them. And if you're young, don't think for a moment you've got it all figured out. Just look around you. If you, if you see somebody who's younger than you, would you just say to them, you don't have it all figured out? Just look right at somebody, you young punk. You think you know everything, but you don't have everything all figured out. You need to draw wisdom from people who are older and just a little bit wiser because life has taken them through a lesson or two. You need that, and you need to be open to it. You, in fact, need to intentionally seek that out. I'm going to end there. There was another thing that I have to say about the holy kiss. I was going to make you all stand up and kiss each other. Um, Some of you are like, darn. I think... Just simply all that was is to say, love in the church is not supposed to be a big secret. You're not supposed to say, you know I love you. You're supposed to show it. There's supposed to be a physical component to it. I love that in our church today, we hug. I think hugging is a very good American substitute for kissing. When I went to Spain, I never knew quite what, I was like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what to do. I was so afraid I was going to turn at the wrong time and accidentally kiss someone on the mouth. And you know, I have to tell my wife I cheated on her. So it's like, a little awkward. Kissing is not my culture. It was once in America. It's probably less so. Hugging is a good substitute. But I think what the the lesson here is reach out and touch someone. Love is not supposed to be a big secret where you assume that they know. You're supposed to let each other know and celebrate. that. I want to ask if the praise team would start slowly making their way up and uh, I want to just issue that invitation one more time, that challenge. That if we're going to be a healthy church, we've got to make a conscious decision to stand together with other people who are Christians. You know, partner to partner, bound together by a sense of mission, but also with the sprinkling, the seasoning of genuine friendship. I hope that's true of our, our staff. We don't always do that well. But I think it's more true of our staff than many staffs I've seen, and I'm grateful for that. I hope it's true of your small group, of your ministry team, that we're really partner-to-partner standing together. I'm glad we're already at this. I hope we will see God escalate this in our church, that we stand church-to-church, fellowship-to-fellowship, city-to-city, loving Christians we've never met because somehow God has brought us together in the shared experience of being saved by his mercy. Finally, I hope you will each awaken to the fact that there is someone right now in this world younger than you who is waiting for you to pour what you've received into them. Jesus once said to his followers, freely, freely you have received, now freely, freely give. Whether you think you've gotten a lot or not, you have something. Your cup is not empty. I hope you will rise to the invitation to pour what you do have into someone who has less. It will make a difference in their lives. In some cases, it will rescue them. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. uh... Just respond to the Lord through some of this. Maybe you're one of those mission, mission, mission people. And you're so driven by the work we're supposed to do, you sometimes forget we're supposed to love one another. I'm sometimes like that. I I wish I wasn't. Some of the people I'm supposed to be closest to in this church—it's been months since we just talked on the phone. I really feel sorry about that. Maybe if that's you, or that's where you find yourself, your commitment to God needs to be. Lord, help me to pay more attention to the friendship side of this house. Maybe it's the other way for you. Maybe you've got some good friends, but you never do anything for the Lord together. Maybe God's saying you'll grow closer together if you leverage that friendship to serve him. Maybe what God is doing this morning is igniting a fire in you for Harvest to be committed to loving other churches. In Tuba City, in Beijing, in Machakos, Kenya, anywhere. Maybe in Northbrook. Maybe if you're a parent, the Lord has touched your heart with a fresh reminder that you're called to disciple your children. Pour into them. Maybe he's stirring in you a decision to serve in our children's ministry, serve our teens, to get into a mentoring relationship. With those things fresh in mind, I'm going to leave it to you now for a few moments. to Quietly respond to the Lord in private. Then we'll come back together to sing together. Lord God, we pray that you will receive these commitments of our hearts, these pleas of our hearts. If we've cried out to you for help in something, we pray that you will answer. And if we've made a commitment to you in our hearts, Lord, we ask that you will grant us the strength, the grace to follow through Let Harvest always be a church that truly stands together and remains healthy in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.